hundreds of stories, documents, photos and videos published by people from all over Europe. This is My History, a collaborative project of the European Parliament where history and the lives of European citizens coincide. Paul Kollewald was born in 1923 in Wissembourg, a small town in Alsace, France. Sandwiched between France and Germany, the Alsace region had changed hands several times between the two countries throughout history. Kollewald was a journalist who worked as Director General for Information at the European Commission and later at the European Parliament. In the 1980s, he was the head of the private office of European Parliament President Pierre Flimla. Through his work, he was involved in the process of building the European Union. Here, Paul Kollewald tells us what it was like to grow up during the war. My jeunesse. What can I say about my youth? You have to remember that I was born in 1923 and then the war came in 1939 and 1940. After France's defeat, Alsace was annexed. It was annexed, not occupied. They're two different things. France was occupied. There was the northern half and the southern half. This division brought a lot of problems. In 1939, I was doing my European baccalaureate and was getting ready for the second cycle of exams, which I would have to pass in order to apply for Saint-Cyr. Saint-Cyr is the military academy for officer training. All my hopes came crashing down, of course, when we were annexed. As a naive young man, I thought to myself, well, the war has to come to an end at some point. I really hope we can win and I can get on with my life. Young and idealistic, Paul Kollewald was determined to shield himself from Nazi propaganda. While studying, he came into contact with leading academics. During the annexation, I said to myself, well, if I want to steer clear of this Nazi philosophy, I need to enroll at the Faculty of Science. The University of Strasbourg was still closed, so I looked for something close to home, Karlsruhe. So I went there for one semester and then to Stuttgart for a bit. Then, as soon as the University of Strasbourg opened, I enrolled on courses where I'd have no exposure to philosophy, history, etc. I was very pleased to discover, and perhaps not everyone knows this, that the Germans sent some of their top professors to Strasbourg as a matter of prestige. The chemistry professor was a Nazi. But would you believe that maths and physics were taught by von Weizsäcker, the brother of the future president? Of course, I sensed that von Weizsäcker had been sent to Strasbourg to get him out of the way. We Alsacian students understood fairly quickly that he wasn't a Nazi, and he was happy to be on friendly terms with his math students. We even went walking in the Vosges, taking our books with us. Thanks to this, let's say, mutual trust, I made it through this time largely unscathed. Most importantly, I had a Bescheinigung, or written confirmation that I was at university so I wouldn't be conscripted. Because they were conscripting people into the Wehrmacht. They annexed us into the Wehrmacht against all international conventions. Hitler couldn't have cared less. <laughs> <laughs> 
parce qu'on mobilisait dans la Wehrmacht contre toutes les conventions internationales. Hein? Non, mais Hitler s'en foutait. <rire> Paul Kollewald used a number of ploys to escape the war for a while. Bon, à un moment donné, mon professeur a dit, écoutez, ça, ça va marcher un certain temps, mais bon. At one point, a professor said, you'll get away with it for a while, but then what? So I spoke to the doctor in Zaborg, where my parents lived, and I had lived too in Zaborg, in the Moselle region. And I said to him, look, this is my predicament. He said, let me examine you. I might find something. I replied, by all means, but I'm in quite good health, so it won't be easy. He prodded my Achilles tendon and the area just below and said, ah, you have a cyst here. I'm going to operate on you and give you a certificate to say that you can't be conscripted. So then I was in hospital and my younger sisters and friends came to see me. And there I was, lying under the white sheets. I said to them, be careful, someone might overhear what we're saying. We mustn't give ourselves away. But even being in hospital was not enough to save Kolowod from being forced to join the German army. His first stop was Poland. I got away with it for a couple of years, but in the end, it must have been autumn 1944, there was nothing more I could do. So I left in September 1944, it must have been, and I hadn't done any training. With young recruits, the German army would send you to Poland first for basic training. I'd never so much as held a gun before. Or perhaps I had, but I'd certainly never used a machine gun. It was in Poland that Paul was fortunate enough to meet a priest who had strong anti-Nazi views and who would give Paul updates on the war. In Poland, I discovered in Poland, I found out there was a six o'clock mass almost every afternoon, and one day I decided to go along. After the mass, I went to say hello to the priest, and he asked me where I was from. I told him I was from Alsace. And he said to me, why don't you come to my house for dinner tonight and we can talk properly? He was thrilled to have a chance to speak French, and so I would go and have dinner with this Polish priest several times a week. Once we'd got to know each other and he realized he could trust me, he said, it's time for the news from London. Ding dong, this is London. We'd listen to This is London on an old radio. And that's how I found out about many things, including the liberation of Colmar and Mulhouse. But then the time came for us to be sent to the front. This was the time when the Russians were advancing further and further. It was after Stalingrad. Kollewald then became a German sergeant's orderly. Because I'd been to university, they had me down as a genius. So I was reassigned because I'd been a student. I became a kind of orderly for the Oberfeldwebel, one of the highest-ranking non-commissioned officers. One day we were in Brandenburg, I think it was, and the German army began its retreat. After a while, like every retreat, it turned into a rout. 
Là, ça a été un peu comme dans toutes les retraites, la, la débandade. Hein. Paul Collowald resolved to take the first chance he had to escape. Luckily, he didn't have to wait long. Le Oberfeldwebel a été blessé. The Oberfeldwebel was wounded, so I had to think quickly. There was a small farm close to where the battle had taken place. I said, let's go to the farmhouse. I'm sure the people will take us in if you're wounded, whatever they might think of the Germans. Then we got there and, well, he got into bed, and that's when I began to plot my escape. The two fronts were getting closer and closer to each other, and we were probably 35 or 40 kilometers from the river Elbe. The Oberfeldwebel was lying on the bed, and I asked him if he felt okay. He said he was, but that he was in pain. I said to him, listen, I know you've got some excellent schnapps in your flask. Ah, yes, he said. Here, drink some, I told him. Glug, glug, glug. And he was out like a light, out like a light. I still remember that we were in a cow shed. There were five or six cows in there. They had toilets, you know, those big things with a hole in the middle. So you know what I did? I saw some overalls hanging on a nail. You know how it is, everything happened so fast, I barely had time to think. I took off my uniform, threw it into the toilet along with my papers, put on the overalls and I thought, right, well, we're not too far from the Elbe. Whatever dangers might lie ahead, I had nothing to lose. I started walking. As a good scout, I knew that the setting sun would lead me westward towards the Elbe, so I walked towards the Elbe. I got to a village, a rather large village, and then came to a crossroads. And what was waiting for me at the crossroads? Soldiers on motorbikes, with those great big things against their chests. They always came in twos, one riding and the other in the sidecar. I got there and had to think fast. One stopped me. Where are your papers? Your papers! As some young French people had been sent to factories in Germany, I pretended I was one of them and said, Ja, barak, camarade, barak, boom, boom, raus, raus, nicht papier. They gave each other a look, I think, because of the retreat, they were pretty tired themselves. They looked at one another, and then the guy in command said to the other, Lass diesen Kerl los, let this guy go. I pretended I hadn't understood and said, Nix papier, nix papier. And they said, Ach, los, los, off you go. Ah. Oh. The river Elbe meant freedom and the chance to get back home. Je marche. I walked towards the Elbe, and five or ten kilometers before I got there, I ran into some others who'd been sent to concentration camps quite late and were still able to walk. Former French prisoners, it was like an exodus. So we made it to the Elbe, only to find the Americans over on the other side. Now they weren't exactly going to send a boat over and say, climb aboard, sir. I was with one of the other Frenchmen and I said to him, the Americans are over there, but they're not going to give us a first-class ticket or anything like that. What are we going to do? As we were standing beside a bombed-out house, he said to me, Listen, there's two of us. 
we're pretty strong, let's give it a try. We could see that the Americans had loaded the cattle wagons until they were fit to burst. They were saying, there's no more room, there's no more room. So we took one of the house's big doors and we placed it on the buffers at the back of the train, and we said to each other, let's see, and we got on. The train stopped several times and at a certain point we were able to board. I remember the train was headed for Paris. At one point we stopped, I think it was in Liège. It clearly wasn't the first train the Belgians had seen pass through as the Red Cross was handing out coffee. The first stage of the journey was behind us. Then we finally arrived in Paris. It must have been the Gare de l'Est. And there I was with no papers, no money, nothing. There were two Red Cross tents on the platform and a tent run by the scouts. I went to the scouts tent and I told them, I'm French, I'm from the Moselle, my parents live in Zarburg and I have no money. You know, your good deed for the day could be to send them a telegram, something very short, saying that I'm back and I'm in good health. In my book, J'ai vu naître l'Europe, there's a copy of that telegram sent to reassure my parents. That was how I got there on the 10th or the 11th of May. So you see that I was among the first to come back because I had a load of friends who later somehow were picked up by the Americans. Anyway, after that I managed to get on a train and make it back to Saarburg, overjoyed. Paul Collerwald finally made it back home to Sonneborg in Alsace. He went back to his life and became a journalist. Later, he started working for the European Coal and Steel Community, which was established in 1952. And that's where he met the founding fathers of the European Union. But that will be the subject of a second episode on Paul Collerwald, based on an interview by Walter Maverich, Director General of Translation at the European Parliament. This was My History, a project of the European Parliament in collaboration with citizens from all over Europe. If you're interested in more podcasts from the European Parliament, look online for Europal Audio or go to the portal of My House of European History.